you guys can take a seat if you haven't already. And I just want to echo what you just said. Psalm, Psalm 95 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So with that, I just want to ask you guys one question, and you're going to be thinking about that for the rest of the time while we are getting in the Word today. And that is, what are you known for? When people talk about you, what are you known for? So keep that in your mind as we dig into Scripture here. So if you haven't been here in a while, um, we've been in the book of Luke for these past few weeks. And last week, Matt ended in the section of Luke chapter 4, where Jesus is led to the desert by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan himself. So to review here, Jesus came from the right hand of the throne here so that he could experience all the hardships and temptations and pain that we go through each day, but without sin. So, so that we could experience eternity with him instead of separate from him. Amen? So he did just that. So our passage today continues that thought as Jesus sets the tone for his ministry during a visit to his, home, his own hometown in Nazareth. So go ahead and turn to Luke 4, and we'll read uh, verse 14 through 30 together. Um, <clears throat> so let me just pray before we get into the word. God, I, again, just ask that you would give us soft hearts and open ears to hear what you have for us this morning, that you would be in charge of all the details, that you would be speaking through me, and it would be your, your spirit and not my words. And so we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. Verse 14, then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in in their synagogues, being praised by everyone. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Verse 22 says, They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to them, No doubt you'll quote this proverb to me. Doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your own hometown also. He also said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's days when the sky was shut up for three years and six months while a great famine came over the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy, and yet not one of them was cleansed except for Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. So the Israelites obviously didn't like 
what Jesus had to say to the point that they deemed it necessary to push him off a cliff, right? So, but he gets away. Now, there's this commercial that I reference probably about once a week at this point, and it kind of applies here a little bit, but I told Matt that we should see how many weeks we can keep this State Farm thing going. So we're just going to go ahead and play that clip real quick. Go ahead. I got you a dollar. Oh, you almost had it. You've got to be quicker than that. <laughs> it's a stretch, I know. But so, <clears throat> so you can imagine the Jews in Nazareth probably must have felt the same way. Oh, you almost had him. But <laughs> they should have been quicker than that. So what, could, what, could, what caused the Jewish people in Nazareth to want to push Jesus off a cliff? Right as he's starting to communicate the whole point of his ministry and setting the tone for his ministry. So let's see. First of all, we're going to talk about the point that he is fully human. So Jesus is fully human. And this is what that means in this passage. So somehow... At the beginning of this passage in verse 14, it says that Jesus is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So it says, then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread to the uh, entire vicinity. So somehow, and we kind of talked about this last week a little bit. Somehow, in the mystery of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, required empowerment from the Holy Spirit, just like you and me. So there's proof right there that he is fully human. Another reason that he is fully human is that he's teaching in the synagogue on a Sunday morning, just like nothing's different. It's, it's a lot like what we're doing here. So they used to have the temple, and then they were taken over, right? And so they started pulling up these synagogues. And it's just, it would be kind of cool to have a synagogue here because it's, it's square seating. So everybody's kind of like around you. And so they have people take turns, a lot like we do here at this church, of just pulling up scripture and teaching out of it, like I'm doing today. So he's just like every other man, it's his turn at bat. So he's pulling up scripture and he's teaching it to these people at the synagogue. And just like any human would be, he's doubted by the Israelites because they know him. So to ask that question again, what are you known for? So Jesus was known as Joseph's son. So I'm asking you this question because I've already asked myself this question. So what am I known for? When I came here and I spent a little bit of time um, getting to know people, doing ministry, there was one phone call that really made it evident as to how people saw me. And I was talking to Doug Johnston on the phone and was just trying to pour into him. And apparently I had never just called to pour into him because I was talking to him and he's like, Oh, you just want to talk? <laughs> like, oh man, that hurts a little bit. Because he had been one of our sound volunteers. And he was also a youth volunteer. So he just assumed that I was calling because I needed something. So that, that relational versus uh, transactional thing has been a battle that God has been working on in me. Because that's how I was known. And I want to get rid of that part of my identity. So they not only doubted him, they assumed that he was blaspheming. So <clears throat> he's reading from Isaiah here, and we'll get into this a little bit more in detail, but he's essentially calling himself the Messiah. And so it makes sense that they would be upset with him, because in this time, there were a lot of people that were coming forth and saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah. So he's just another one of the wannabe messiahs, right? So it makes sense. When we look at it from their perspective at the synagogue, it makes sense, because the law states 
blasphemers are to be put to death, right? So it makes sense that they would try to go push him off a cliff. Next point is that he is also fully God. So he's fully human, fully, 100% human. He's also 100% fully God because God doesn't use math like we do. (laughs) So he ordained the passage to be read. This is a passage from Isaiah 61. It's not verbatim, and the mystery there is beyond me. Um, But the passage is from Isaiah 61. So if you wanted to look up the original passage, you can. But we're going to read it from here in Luke. And I'm just going to go through this a little bit. So verse 18, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free the the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he starts off by saying, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. It's not not something crazy to say. Old, Old Testament uh, there, were, there were also believers in the Old Testament that were empowered by the Holy Spirit, prophets and such. It says, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. Okay, still sounds good. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. Okay, well, this is starting to sound like some of the year of Jubilee talk that happens in Isaiah. So it still kind of tracks. Recovery of the sight to the blind and sit free of the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That passage in itself isn't that controversial. But then when you couple it with the fact that he said, today the scripture has been fulfilled, that's where it gets to be blasphemous. That's where they start to get upset. And that starts their wheels turning of doubting, who is this guy? So there's a lot that we could get into in this passage. There's, there's commentaries over just this section. And the main thing that you guys need to know is that Jesus is three things in this, in this passage in Isaiah. Jesus is empowered by the Spirit. He's prophet of things to come. And casually, he's also the Messiah. <laughs> that's what's happening in this passage. And that's why it's so controversial for him to say that. Because if you look at this passage, so he just reads it. And then essentially, he does this power move where... If we need to just go to a black screen, that's fine. He does this power move where he essentially just pulls up a chair, he gets done reading, hands it off to the attendant, right? And then what, what does he do next? <clears throat> so he then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, this is verse 20, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. So he had their full attention. He knew exactly what he was doing. He said, today, as you listen, the scripture has been fulfilled. And so they all start speaking about him and, and starting to doubt him. And he can hear their thoughts, right? Because he's God. And so what does he say in response to that? He says, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. There's a place where that comes up in Scripture again. Because he's not only doing cross-references of things that have already happened with the prophets, he's also calling what's going to happen. Where this happens again is in Luke 23, 34 through 43. So we're going to talk about that for a second. Let's go ahead and put that passage up, and we're going to read this together. 
Hopefully. Maybe. No? Cool. Um, let me turn to it then. Sweet. Awesome. So, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Let's see if I can get back to it here. He said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. The people stood watching, and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself. If this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. I, how you yell this at somebody who's dying the same death as you, beyond me. But he says, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Or, sorry, that was the other one. So aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him. So this is the other prisoner on the other side of Jesus. Don't you even fear God? Since you are undergoing the same punishment... We are punished justly because we are getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So he's looking ahead at his own crucifixion and saying, I know you're going to say this to me. It's proof that he's God. And even the the criminal on the opposite side of him said, this man has done no wrong. And he's right. There's, he never sinned one time. He came and lived the life that we have to live, and yet without sin. So he sits down and, and he continues on and says, truly I say to you, which in, in the Bible, if you hear that, it's essentially like putting amen at the beginning of what you're about to say. Like, you're going to already agree with me. This is, it's worth hearing. So he says, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. He wasn't accepted. Because they thought that he was lying. And they had every reason to believe that he was lying. So I have one question for you. <clears throat> Which criminal are you? Are you the one on the right? That is seeking to defame Jesus, or are you the one on the left that is seeking to proclaim Jesus? Do your actions proclaim him or defame him? The last point here, not the last point, we've got a ways to go, but only he has the full picture, right? So only Jesus has the full picture. So he starts busting out these references like he's a, a cross-reference rain man, right? Because he didn't have this passage ahead of time, other than the fact that he was God, right? So he goes and talks about Elijah and Elisha. So let's talk about those in detail a little bit. So he's talking about the fact that Elijah helped a widow in Sidon instead of ending this famine in Israel. Horrible, horrible famine. That was specific to Israel. But instead he is told by God to help this widow in Sidon who actually is pursuing him and actually is repentant. And same thing with Elisha. He says, Elisha helped Naaman the Syrian instead of healing the lepers in Israel. And if you remember that story, Naaman didn't even really have that much faith. 
He had to be coaxed into going back into the river. So it says something about the hardness of heart that Israel had, that God didn't have mercy on them. And understand, this is, this is a very countercultural statement. So the fact that Jesus is calling this out, that this person from Sidon and this person from Syria, they're not from the kingdom of God. They're not from Israel. And in this time, Israelites weren't allowed to even be in the same room as people that are not Israelites. It, they were considered unclean, and they would have to be ritually clean in order to give sacrifices again. So it was extremely countercultural for him to be saying stuff like this. So that's another reason why they got so upset. But Jesus is doing one more thing here. He's, he's calling them on their privilege. He's calling the Jewish people on their privilege. So if you remember a couple weeks ago, Greg Picklap was in Luke 3, verses 8 through 9. I think we have that on the screen, hopefully. But, therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children from Abraham from these stones. And this is my favorite verse of this, of this chapter. It says, the axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So that's John the Baptist saying that. And Jesus is essentially echoing what John the Baptist said back in chapter 3. Ultimately, their unbelief is what kept him from doing those things in Nazareth like he did in Capernaum, which is just in the area of Galilee and the rest of Galilee itself. And like most people would do, they took this personally. And uh, if we had the screen on here, I would have the Michael Jackson meme, or Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan meme where he's saying, and I took that personally. Um, but here's the challenge to you. How often do you take something personally and turn to destruction? When you hear somebody else's perspective on something and you turn to, to, straight to destruction, how often does that happen to you? So I'll give you a couple examples. Here's one of, of Kate and I. So oftentimes, um, we'll ask each other, how am I, how am I doing at loving you today? Um, especially when we get back from work and we're just kind of recapping the day. And um, <clears throat> There's been a few times where Kate said, I mean, it's, it's been pretty lacking. And my selfishness and my, my pride often fights that and says, well, I came right home and started at work and I, I poured into everything in the house and picked stuff up and it was a mess. And what? Well, her love language is affirmation. And if she had been working all day long to try to get the house pulled back together and then I spent another hour and a half without communicating with her, what that communicates to her is that what she did wasn't good enough. And that's not the truth. Truth is, and she understands, I love you, and I pursued you by trying to clean up the house, and vice versa. Um, she needs to be told that she's doing well. And sometimes that means not doing the things around the house. Thinking that I'm helping, I'm actually hurting. So I needed to see it from her perspective. 
but I didn't, and I chose destruction. I made a long fight about that until I finally let my pride fall to the floor, and I saw it from her perspective. Another one that's a little less um, heavy-hearted is, uh, Travis, raise your hand. Go ahead. If you know Travis Garrett, you know he's a big guy. He can squat how much? It's some weight, and he can bench somewhat. So he's he's a big, strong guy, right? Okay, so we had challenge at home here. COVID made it so we couldn't go down to Kansas City, so we did challenge, challenge here. Um, oh, this wasn't a challenge. This was later on. But anyway, so we had Jared Cole come and do a Q&A about uh, social justice and raci- racial reconciliation and all that. Uh, I didn't tell the leaders that he was coming. <laughs> and uh, so Travis is sitting in the back, and uh, Jared's just telling all about it. If you don't know Jared, he is the host of the podcast, The Ambassador, and it's all about racial reconciliation in the church and how they go together. And um, great podcast if you haven't listened to it already. And so I just look back and I see Travis's wheels turning. And uh, so Jared's just, he's preaching away and he's, he's telling everybody this is what it looks like. And so Travis stands up. I'm like, oh no, here we go. Because he's a big guy. He's got tattoos, big white guy, you know. So I know him well enough that he probably wouldn't say anything, and he didn't. What he did was he asked a question, and Jared answered, and then they had a conversation moving forward. And then from that point on, correct me if I'm wrong, you stayed up to date on his podcast moving forward because you want to know and see it from his perspective. And I was very proud of that with you, um, that you see it from their perspective, and it allows you to have more compassion. And that compassion breeds empathy, and that empathy breeds unity. So that's why it's so important to try to see it from somebody else's perspective. Because how would it go differently if you chose humility like Christ does and tried to see it through somebody else's lens? So Jesus was on high at the right hand of the throne. He chose to come here, be tortured and to live a perfect life so that we could spend eternity with him. Take it one step further. What if you submitted to the fact that Christ is the only one that has authored and has the full perspective of the truth? So for this one, uh, we have to go to the classic Nick Cage movie, uh, National Treasure. So <clears throat> in National Treasure, they're, obviously they're chasing down all these these different treasures that are part of the, the revolution and things like that. And they actually steal the Declaration of Independence, spoilers, um, and they cover it in lemon juice and all this stuff. They just ruin it. Um, and they find these, these spectacles that Benjamin Franklin made. Um, they have several lenses on them, right? Um, and so at first, they, they look through it at the back of the, the Declaration, and they see a message that says, here at the wall, two E's, H-E-E-R-E, at the wall. And they follow that clue, and it, it takes them to a dead end. And so they're just so discouraged. And then by accident, they realize that you can put the lenses together and, and see more of what is coded there. It's like using the, uh, out of the cereal box with the decoder ring or whatever, you can see more picture. So you put those three lenses together, and then it says, beneath Parkington Lane which is like the GPS coordinates to where they actually need to go, right? So they see it in a much, much clearer picture. And that's what God gives us. This is also how he chose to reveal the Gospels to us. 
Luke is just one gospel. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all tell essentially the same thing from a different perspective. A lot of people will look at that and say, oh, well, it's not consistent, so it's not true. No, it is true. God chose to use limited people, empowered by the Spirit, just like Jesus, to tell the story of what happened. And we get the clearest picture possible when we look at it all together. So Jesus set the tone for his ministry by saying this. Jesus said, I am here. I am fully man. I am fully God. And I'm the only one with the whole picture. So follow me. Let's talk about those one by one. He says, I am here. This is, this is who I am. You can literally accept me or reject me, but here I am. I'm finally here. I'm fully man. I chose to come here and become human and experience all the pain you feel firsthand because I love you and I chose to save you. I'm fully God. I'm in complete control and I will have the victory. Amen? I am the only one who has the whole picture. He's calling us to accept our limited viewpoint and seek to see the truth from his perspective through humbly observing someone else's perspective and sharing yours with them, vice versa, in love. And then follow me. Jesus essentially says, I humbly pursued you. I longed to live among you. So I did so knowing full well what was going to happen. Get entrenched, get unentrenched from your limited perspective and seek to see things from my perspective instead. Live in a way that makes being a follower of Jesus the thing you are most known for. Not your background, not your skills, not your mistakes, not your personal bias. You are first and foremost a child of God, loved by Jesus and paid for by his sacrifice on the cross. So how do we do that? I'm a super practical person. I don't know about you guys, but maybe even to a fault. And the answer to me, it's, it's very simple. Pray. Prayer is the answer. So if you're a student in here from Forge, you know that I use bless all the time. And it's begin with prayer, listen with care, eat, serve, share. It's our ministry model and our, our uh, discipleship, or what are we looking for? evangelism model that we use in order to build relationship with people, right? So it applies here too. We begin with prayer. And here's why it's so important. Prayer does three things for us. It gives us a better perspective on the other person's inner world, for one. And the best way to do that is to pray in person. God has been putting this on my heart a lot lately. It's not good enough to say that I'm going to pray for you. And then half the time, you're not doing it. You have to pray for that person in person. Does it work when you pray at home? Sure it does, but how consistent are you? You need to pray in person because that, it forces you to know that person well enough to be able to pray for them. That first time you pray for somebody you don't know, it's a little awkward because you don't know them well enough to really pour into their lives. But the more you get to know them, the better you can pray for them. Second thing it does is it gives you a better perspective on your own heart. Prayer does. Uh, 
Robbie Gallaty is a pastor in Tennessee, and he, he puts forth this challenge that you should have a texting group with people that are praying for you. They're typing up their text message, and they're putting it out there. Jesus gave us the model. He said, I have my three disciples that are closest to me, and those are the people that he let in. Same thing for us. Find three people, three to five, whatever it is for you. Three people is doable. Get a texting thread with them. Pour into each other. Man, this is, it can be super powerful to be pouring into each other as the heads of our households. And then lastly, it gives us better perspective on God's power, presence, and purpose. And that's a phrase we use here on, as the worship team, that worship isn't strictly to make God's name known and great. It's also for us to recalibrate on God's power and presence and purpose. So Jesus set the example for us in this. He did two things. In this passage, he shows that he knew his stuff. He was in the word. He already knew everything. But he gave us the example that we should know the word well enough that we can pull Elijah, Elisha, out of our back pocket whenever we need it. Now, we can't know the future, obviously. (laughs) That's only God's job. But we should know our Bible well enough that we can do that. And then the other thing is that Jesus always ran to prayer. He always found a private space that he could get alone with God. And Scripture teaches us to not be out in the temple or synagogue praying out loud and all this. Pray in private. Now, I know that sounds counterintuitive to what I just said, which was to pray for people in person, but that's not the purpose. It's not for me. It's for that person. So Jesus does those two things. He gets in the word, and he knows it well. He studied it. He taught it in the synagogue, and then he also gets private with God to the effect that in Gethsemane, he is weeping, asking God, again, showing his humanity to take this cup from me. That level of intimacy is what God wants from us. That even Jesus, who knew what was going to happen and was extremely anxious about what was about to happen to the point of, some believe, sweating blood, was still pursuing after God and trying to connect with him deeper. So go to prayer. Prayer gives us a better perspective on other people's inner world, It gives us a better perspective on our own heart. And it gives us a better perspective on God's power, presence, and purpose. Jesus has the full picture. We would be cheating ourselves to not pursue him. And not to just do that in the word, but also do it as we're praying for people. I'm, I'm telling you guys, if you pray for people in person, it's like starting the mower. Like it, It's going to take a little bit to get it going, but once you get it going, your mower is going to be moving, and you're going to start praying for people you never thought to pray for. In private, in person, doesn't matter. Just start doing it. So I'm going to pray for us as we have the, as the worship team comes up, but God, just make this true in us, that we would run to your word, we would run to prayer, we would connect with you on a deeper level so that we can see revival happen. God, you You've shown us as a team here, as a worship team, as, as staff, that today you didn't want us, or you wanted us to hear this. The devil did not want us to hear this message. 
but you fought hard for us. So help us this week to fight hard for our relationship with you, that we would get into the word, that we would know you on a deeper level so that we can represent you well and change the narrative. When people look at us and they try to figure out what we're known for, the first thing that they would see is that we know Jesus and Jesus is our identity. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.